0: Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we looked at the development and organization of the three Scandinavian kingdoms at the end of the Viking Age and the dawn of the Middle Ages from a political, financial and military perspective. We saw how all of these aspects were interconnected and influenced each other. Denmark, the wealthiest and dominant of the three kingdoms, was also the one where the king was the weakest due to the fact that the Danish nobility was so strong and rich. Norway, on the other hand, was far poorer in terms of resources and arable land, but the Norwegian king was much stronger than his Danish counterpart, thanks to the Norwegian nobility being weaker and more functioning as a tool for the king to run his kingdom than a force that could oppose him. Sweden was somewhere in the middle, muddling along still trying to coalesce into a unified state, at least in the beginning of the Middle Ages. It's important to keep in mind that these political developments and the power struggle between king and nobility didn't necessarily have such a great impact on the daily life of most Scandinavians. For the vast majority of Danes, Norwegians and Swedes, life continued more or less unaltered, and most of them were obviously completely unaware of the fact that they were living through a transition from one historical era to another. And if you would have pointed it out to them, chances are they wouldn't have cared much. Their lives Routines and concerns remained mostly the same as they had been for generations, and would do so for many generations to come. This week, we'll talk about the one institution, as far as the lion's share of ordinary Scandinavians were concerned, that touched each and every one of them. That is the church. We'll see how it developed in parallel with the kingdom, often aiding and strengthening the secular political power, but sometimes also challenging it. Episode 33, Church and State Around the year 1100, all of Scandinavia was officially Christian. By then, all three kingdoms had adopted the new religion, and the Old Norse gods had been banned. We've talked about this in previous episodes, not least in episode 20, a new religion. The Swedes, as usual, I'm tempted to say, were the last ones to get with the program, A reason that has been suggested in order to explain this is the temple at Uppsala that we've talked about before, and the fact that the political and religious powers were entangled with the Swedish king performing key religious ceremonies at the Uppsala temple when the thing met there. In the late 11th century, Inge the Old was king of Sweden. Inge was a devout Christian who persecuted those who kept faith with the old gods, and did what he could to promote Christianity in Sweden. For instance he is supposed to have founded the first monastery in the country. We have some indications pointing to him being a Geat rather than a Swede, and that may explain his religious attitudes, and perhaps especially his lack of interest in upholding pre-Christian religious customs at Uppsala. Because you see, even though the Uppsala region was predominantly Christian at this time, the old practice of the king performing the sacrifice of the realm, or Riksblut, when the thing assembled there, was still upheld. But Inge the Old had no sympathy or nostalgic feelings for the Swedish custom, and so in the year 1084 or thereabout, he decided to refuse to perform the sacrifice when the thing assembled for its annual deliberations. This didn't go down well with the thingmen though, and so they gave the king an ultimatum. Perform the ritual or abdicate. Inge rejected their ultimatum, saying that it was time to abolish this pagan custom once and for all. As a response... The Thingmen pelted the king with stones, and he was forced to flee the premises. Inge's brother-in-law, Sven, stepped into the power vacuum, offering to perform the sacrifice if he was elected king instead of Inge. The Thing accepted his offer, and Sven was elected king. Since then, he is known in history as Sven the Sacrificer. But Sven's reign was only to last for three years. Inge had survived the pelting at the Thing in Uppsala, and eventually reached Vestrogothia, with its reliably Christian population. There, he bided his time, and at the right moment, he gathered his forces and marched on Uppsala. He managed to catch Sven the Sacrificer off guard and burned him and his retinue alive in Sven's hall. While they were at it, they also burned down the temple and cut down the trees in the sacrificial grove, thus once and for all putting a definite end to the public worshipping of the old gods at Uppsala. When Sven and the temple had been destroyed and done away with, All three Scandinavian kingdoms could finally meet the 12th century as Christian states. Soon, the organization and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church had been established, and Scandinavia had been incorporated into the Church. On the surface, everything looked fine, dandy and Christian. But we know almost nothing about what ordinary people actually thought about it. We do, however, have reasons to assume that the old pre-Christian beliefs and practices lived on for generations after they were officially banned. Even though Scandinavians started to undergo baptism, that doesn't mean that they internalized Christian teachings, or even had a very clear idea about what those teachings were. Throughout the Viking Age, many Scandinavians recognized the Christian God, but only as one of several deities, which kind of misses the point. Similarly, in the mid-11th century, the Swedes made a collective decision to recognize the Christian God as the supreme, but not the only God. But the early missionaries tended to be flexible and pragmatic. They were less interested in the deeper inner convictions of individuals. They focused on the surface level and what people did, especially what people did in public. For example, to make the conversion as smooth as possible, Missionaries would emphasise certain aspects of Christianity that appealed to Scandinavian tastes, such as the victorious Jesus battling Satan, and not well too much on alien concepts such as the Trinity and original sin. All of this leads to the question of how Christian the Scandinavians actually were in the early Middle Ages. With time, of course, Christian teachings would seep into the population through exposure at mass or other religious events, as well as rudimentary education that was run by the church. The old religion would fade away and become a faint and distant echo, detectable in some place names and folk customs that very few people could explain the roots of. But back then, in those first generations that still remembered the old religion or among those who heard stories about it from older relatives who had participated in the cult of the old gods, how Christian were they and what did Christianity mean to them? It's well nigh impossible to say, of course, but that hasn't stopped people from having opinions on the issue. Strong opinions. Persistent voices, not least in Scandinavian academia, have long claimed that the conversion was superficial and that people didn't really embrace Christianity with all its dogmas and abstract concepts. In the 19th century, there was a not too subtle anti-Catholic tendency in this claim, where the seemingly natural pre-Christian religion was pitted against the perceived dogmatism and superstitions of Rome. In the 20th century, anti-Catholicism lost much of its potency in Scandinavia, Those who would seek to minimize the importance of religion in general, and Christianity in particular, were instead disciples of historical materialism, arguing that religion, in whatever form, was just window dressing and nothing worth paying much attention to. But in later years, we see the pendulum swinging in the opposite direction, and among historians today, there's a renewed interest in religion and its importance. As an argument against the materialist claim, These scholars like to point out that the medieval Scandinavians made large donations to the church, making it one of the richest organizations and largest landowners in northern Europe. Why would people donate land and money to a cause they didn't believe in? The counter-argument is that the church was a powerful organization, and by giving some of your land and resources to the church, you can enjoy some of its power and influence. Furthermore, large donations to the church or any other worthy cause – Were a status symbol. You could improve or confirm your social standing by large and ostentatious donations and religious ceremonies, such as lavish funerals. In one such ceremony, taking place at funerals, the horse of a deceased nobleman would be led into the church up to the coffin, so the animal symbolically followed his master to the grave, as in pre-Christian times with the one minor difference that in pre-Christian times it hadn't been symbolic and the horse would usually be slaughtered and buried together with its master. The heirs would then redeem the horse from the church for a large amount of money, showing their wealth and piety at the same time. So, I guess we're back to my original question. Was this an act of genuine piety or just a smart social and political move? And I'm afraid I have to disappoint you. I don't know. There aren't enough reliable sources to go on, which leads me to believe that the conclusion people reach on this particular issue say more about them than it does about the worldview of medieval Scandinavians. Those who like to minimize the role of religion in the lives of medieval Scandinavians also like to point out that there was little heresy in Scandinavia in the Middle Ages. And why was that? It was hardly because people were so pious and scrupulous about adhering to orthodox Catholic dogma. So a convenient conclusion would be that people just weren't all that moved by the gospel and didn't think about the nature of God or salvation enough to develop their own heretical theories about such things. Or maybe they were, but belief just wasn't policed as much as behavior was. Another sign of local Scandinavian piety is the number of local saints who pop up in the Middle Ages. We've already spoken at length about St. Olav, the eternal king of Norway, and next time, we'll talk about St. Knut, the martyred king of Denmark. Sweden also had its own saintly king, St. Saint Eric, whom we'll get back to further down the line. None of these local saints were venerated outside of Scandinavia, with the exception of St. Olav, and St. Bridget, whom we'll also get back to in a future episode. Also here, Those sceptical of the importance of religion for its own sake may object that most of these saints were kings, and their elevation and veneration served political purposes, making the promotion of their cult political rather than pious. Against that, you could point to St. Bridget, who wasn't a king, but on the other hand, she didn't exactly shy away from politics. As you can see, this debate could go on forever, but let's leave it at that. I've already mentioned a few times that the church was a powerful institution. But how did that power manifest itself? And how did the representatives of the church wield said power? In pre-Christian Scandinavia, there was no separation between religious and secular power. In most cases, the local chieftain was the one performing any communal sacrifices, and any religious rituals carried out at home were typically taken care of by the head of the household or by his wife. Only after the conversion to Christianity do we see the introduction of a separate class of clergy whose job it is to handle people's business with God. We also get a distinct separation between two power nodes, the king and the church, sometimes cooperating and sometimes competing. You may think that this was bad for the kings and their attempts to centralize their newly established kingdoms. And that is true, of course, but only to a point. The emergence of the church and the concentration of all religious authority in the hands of its representatives could actually also serve to strengthen the centralizing efforts of the king. You see, the church undermined the power of local chieftains, since they lost their religious function. Furthermore, if these local chieftains refused to convert to Christianity, they could also be replaced by local Christians of the king's choice. This was particularly popular in Norway, where the first Christian kings actually had weak personal power bases initially. Conversely, local lords who did convert could retain some of the power and influence by building churches on their land and appointing priests to work in them. This is especially pronounced in Iceland, where there was no central authority at all. Instead, the local chieftain continued to control religious life via proxy by building and maintaining a church. And local chieftains weren't the only ones who had influence over the early medieval Scandinavian church. The kings of that period had considerable influence over ecclesiastical matters, especially compared to later on. Much like local chieftains would appoint priests as they saw fit, kings would interfere in the elections of bishops, even though that technically wasn't any of their business, and representatives of the church resented and tried to fight that kind of secular interference in internal church affairs. But a bishop was a powerful man, who not only had direct access to the most effective tool for disseminating propaganda of his time, that is, messages that the priest could pass on at mass, but he also controlled large tracts of land and even commanded armies of his own. So it was crucial that a bishop would be someone the king could trust. Only a fool of a king would let someone else decide who'd be a bishop. With time though, the church would assert more independence. To a large extent, This was done by changing the church's legal and financial status. Much like the budding nobility, the church managed to obtain more and more legal privileges as the Middle Ages progressed. The church achieved the right to conduct its own legal proceedings. It was granted far-reaching tax exemptions, and early restrictions on donations to the church were lifted. These increased privileges led to the wealth of the church growing which made it increasingly difficult for the king to control, or even influence. At this time, noblemen started to join the ranks of the church hierarchy as well as a way to attain or retain power and status. Aristocratic clerics were good for the church too, since they brought with them useful contacts and the respect their names commanded. They also tended to donate parts of their fortunes to the church when becoming bishops, thus increasing the wealth of the institution. This was actually a bit of a change from earlier days of Scandinavian Christianity, when the clergy seemed to have had a rather low status. Early priests had complained that they weren't treated with the respect that they thought that they deserved, not even by their own parishioners. The initial low status of priests is also sometimes reflected in law. Up until the 12th century, the law in the Norwegian Gulating region Stipulated that priests would be subject to beatings as punishment for various offences instead of being allowed to pay fines like respectable freemen. Even though Rome was far away from Scandinavia, various popes did what they could to promote church independence from the state. But on some matters, the representatives of the Vatican clearly felt that the church in Scandinavia was a little too independent. A good example is the fact that the Scandinavian priests took the clerical vow of celibacy as a recommendation more than an ironclad rule. Scandinavian priests got married if they felt like it, and as late as in the year 1237, Pope Gregory IX wrote to express his annoyance about Norwegian priests getting hitched. The suggested compromise that the priests not marry widows or divorcees did not impress the Pope one bit. He demanded that they stop the practice altogether. Eventually, official celibacy was introduced in Scandinavia, even though it remained relatively easy for priests to have their children born out of wedlock legitimized and enable their inheritance. As I've said before, land was the basis for wealth and power in the Middle Ages, and it didn't take many generations for the church to become a large landowner in all three Scandinavian kingdoms, thanks to donations. The church was also a constant and undying landowner, a landed family may rise and fall, but the church just kept rising, with more and more land added to its holdings. It never risked running out of family members, and its land was never divided among heirs. But land ownership wasn't the only source of income for the church. Another important factor in the growth of ecclesiastical wealth was the introduction of tithing in Scandinavia. If you're unfamiliar with the concept, tithing is an idea with Biblical roots that says that everyone should contribute one-tenth of their earnings to the Church. The concept was first introduced in Scandinavia around the year 1100, and even though it most likely took a few generations for tithing to become a widespread, let alone universal custom, it still helped making the Church rich and powerful in a part of the world where it was still relatively new and poor. Tithing wasn't only a way for the church to take control over its own finances and grow its own wealth, though. Some of the money that came in was also used to aid parishioners in need, something that increased the prestige and the popular support of the institution. So, even though it had started out with nothing, the church eventually became a state within the state, owning large tracts of land, administrating a parallel legal system and collecting taxes of its own. Being rich and powerful made the church a potential rival to the crown. But the church was also very important for the king because it provided him with ideological backing, preaching that the natural order of things was that each land be ruled by a king on earth, just as one god ruled in heaven. Beyond the ideological blessing, the church could also provide administrative expertise for budding and expanding states. The bureaucracy and hierarchy of the church were useful tools in uniting and governing large and diverse regions under newly established crowns. Many of the men who worked in the king's administration were clerics, and even those who weren't had benefited from an education provided by the church. Christianity was also a way for Scandinavian kings to forge alliances with powerful kings abroad. This could be useful both in international relations and in domestic struggles for the throne at home. So the church definitely had its uses, and most of the time, It was in the interest of both the ecclesiastical and the secular powers that they worked together. But every now and then the church and the king came into conflict with each other. Sometimes because the king tried to curb the power incomes of the church and sometimes because the church tried to meddle in affairs of state. In theory, the king decided on secular matters and the church on religious matters. But the line between them wasn't always very clear. From time to time, there were conflicts over where exactly to draw that line between the king's and the church's authority. This conflict was ongoing throughout the Middle Ages, simmering in the background and erupting every now and then. When they did erupt, conflicts between the crown and church often focused on money. For instance, who was allowed to collect fines from legal proceedings? This was a growing revenue stream in the 12th and 13th centuries when new concepts of law were introduced, such as blasphemy and punishments for not following the accepted religious customs, such as respecting the ban on working on holidays. This strengthened the ecclesiastical legal system, since this type of crime was eventually handled in that system and not in the regular legal system. Much like in the case of the nobility that we talked about last time, The church also made sure that their tax exemption expanded from only land cultivated by church institutions themselves to include tenants' farmers on church land. Another source of conflict that didn't directly involve money was the question of who had the right to appoint church officials, especially bishops and archbishops. Representatives of the church feared that royal intervention would undermine ecclesiastical independence and the king hoped to control the church by appointing its bishops. Sometimes, conflict between the crown and the church could escalate quite dramatically. The mid to late 13th century, for instance, is a time when we see such conflicts all over Scandinavia, indicating that this was a period when the power balance was being fine-tuned. In Denmark, the second half of the 13th century was plagued with a power struggle between church and state, which ultimately ended with the Pope himself having to step in. Interestingly enough, he chose to rule in favour of the crown, and not the Danish church. Similar tension was to be found in Sweden as well, and in the late 13th century, the Norwegian archbishop excommunicated the Regency Council, which in turn declared the archbishop and some other clerics to be outlaws. The political maneuvering of the senior representatives of the church also left traces in the administrative division of the ecclesiastical provinces in Scandinavia. At first, when Scandinavia was won for Christ, the whole region was placed under the control of the Archbishop of Hamburg Bremen. But in the year 1103, or possibly 1104, the Danes managed to establish their own archdiocese, not only stepping out of the German shadow, but also taking over responsibility for Sweden, Norway, and the Scandinavian colonies in the North Atlantic. The new Scandinavian archbishop resided in Lund, in the province of Scania, which back then still was a part of Denmark. Spoiler alert, it won't last. The breaking off of Scandinavia from the Archdiocese of Hamburg Bremen wasn't a consequence of internal development in Scandinavia. It is true that the three Scandinavian kingdoms had by now been divided into dioceses with bishops running an increasingly sophisticated operation similar to what was expected of bishops in the rest of Europe. But the elevation of Lund to the archbishopric had nothing to do with any of that. Instead, The decision was the Vatican's revenge against the Archbishop of Hamburg Bremen for siding with the Holy Roman Emperor against the Pope in the so-called investiture controversy over who had the right to appoint bishops and abbots. Almost exactly 50 years later, in 1152, a bishop by the name of Nicholas Breakspear visited Scandinavia and presided over a church synod in Trondheim. During that synod, he sorted out the chaotic structure of the church in Norway and established a Norwegian archdiocese, independent of the archbishop in Lund. This new archdiocese was quite large, covering not only mainland Norway, but also the Orkney, Shetland and Faroe Islands, as well as Iceland and Greenland. This is an indication of their cultural ties to Norway, even though not all of these islands recognized the king of Norway as their sovereign. Breakspear's visit was generally popular among Scandinavians. One of the few who did not have cause to be particularly enthusiastic about Bishop Breakspear's Scandinavian tour was Archbishop Eskil in Lund, who lost a big chunk of his power base when this new Norwegian archdiocese was created. But there wasn't much Eskil could do about it, especially since Breakspear was elected Pope more or less as soon as he returned to Rome. Under the name Pope Adrian IV, he confirmed what Bishop Breakspear had been up to in Scandinavia. This administrative redistribution wasn't directed against Bishop Eskil, though, but once again against the archbishopric of Hamburg-Bremen, which lately had been trying to reassert its control over Scandinavia. Bishop Breakspeare hoped that having two archbishoprics would make such a power move more difficult. The archbishop of Lund was just collateral damage on this continued conflict between Rome and Hamburg-Bremen, but I somehow doubt that that was much comfort to the unfortunate archbishop Eskil. And more was to come, only 12 years later. In 1164, the Swedish archbishopric of Uppsala was established, breaking off Sweden from the archbishopric of Lund as well. But this time, it was a move directed against the Danes. It was payback for the Danish king's support for the anti-pope Victor IV during the papal schism. The winning pope, Alexander III, took revenge on his opponent's Danish supporters by reducing their archdiocese by half. By the way... Please note that Uppsala was made the seat of the new archbishop. That way, the town kept its significance as a religious centre, even though the religion in question had changed. So far, you may be forgiven if you've gotten the impression that the church was all about money, land and power. And that's not the whole picture. Far from it. And I'd like to take a moment or two to talk about some of the other ways the introduction of Christianity affected Scandinavian and Scandinavian culture. First, let's have a look at architecture. Almost all the medieval buildings still standing today in Scandinavia are churches. They were built in stone in styles brought straight from the continent bringing Romanesque and later Gothic aesthetics to this part of the world. The notable exception is the Norwegian so-called stave churches that we've talked about before on this show. They display pre-Christian decorative elements, such as dragon heads on top of the gables, as well as other architectural features that don't look anything like a standard medieval church. Some claim it's the pagan temple in Christian form, whereas others think it's Romanesque architecture in wood. But I have to say that its if it's the latter, it's a very personal interpretation of Romanesque architecture. Just like on the continent, The inside of Scandinavian churches were richly decorated with colourful paintings and sculptures, something that may be easily forgotten when you visit them today. During the reformation in the 16th century, Scandinavians, filled with a protestant zeal, removed the statues and painted over the images on the walls, giving Scandinavian churches their bright, scaled-back, sleek look that they tend to have these days. Beyond art and architecture, the church also boosted literacy in Scandinavia, not to mention the fact that the Latin language and script were introduced via the representatives of the new religion. And that script was put to use not only in writing religious texts, but also by those manning the increasingly professionalized royal bureaucracy as well as for education. The church was the main source of education and learning in the Middle Ages. Whether you wanted to study theology, philosophy, science, classical literature or law, Most libraries were church libraries, even though they tended to be on the small side. For instance, a 14th century bishop in Bergen, Norway, was mighty proud of his impressive library containing no fewer than 36 books. Larger cathedral libraries may have contained 100 volumes or so. That's not particularly impressive compared to the continent. The Canterbury Cathedral Library, for instance, had 1,300 books at the same time. The largest Scandinavian library was to be found in the Monastery at Vastena in Sweden. But we don't know exactly how many books it contained, since many, if not most, were stolen or destroyed during the Reformation in the 16th century. But quantity isn't everything. What kind of books was found on the shelves of medieval Scandinavian libraries? Well, even though a lot of them obviously had a Christian content, not all of them did. That Bergen bishop with his 36 books, had a few of the Icelandic sagas in his collection, as well as some Latin texts. Elsewhere in Scandinavia, we also found works in Greek, as well as Old Norse translations of ancient classics. So, the Saga of the Romans, or Romveria Saga, was a description of Roman history until the death of Caesar Augustus, and the Saga of the Trojans, or Trojumanna Saga, was loosely based on the Iliad, quite the cross-cultural meshup, if you ask me. We also found locally produced original books, but written in Latin, not the local vernacular. As was so often the case, Denmark led the way, and was the first Scandinavian country to develop a domestic Latin literature. Norway and Iceland followed. The Swedes were latecomers to this field as well, and only really developed a local Latin literature a few generations later. But once they did, the Swedes soon overtook the Norwegians and the Icelanders, so Denmark and Sweden were the leading countries in terms of domestically produced literature in Latin. Many of these books were hagiographies, not least of Scandinavian saints such as Saint Olav, as well as chronicles and descriptions of current affairs, with a pro-church agenda, of course. Iceland, a relatively poor and isolated part of the Scandinavian cultural sphere, and with a small population – still had some surprisingly large libraries. Local churches could have libraries of the same size as those belonging to bishops in other parts of Scandinavia, and the diocesan library in Holar contained as many as 332 books in 1525, admittedly at the end of the Middle Ages, but still impressive, if you ask me. The focus of the books found in these libraries was religious, for obvious reasons, but there were also other books, covering a wide range of topics. One intriguing aspect of medieval Icelandic literature was that people in Iceland not only wrote in the local language, but also about it. And this was unique in Scandinavia. Philologists in the rest of Scandinavia studied Latin or Greek grammar or syntax, not their own language. The first grammatical treatise on Icelandic stems from the 12th century, and that's remarkably early for Scandinavia. This can be seen as a product either of Iceland's isolation, or an appreciation of the local culture and heritage, or perhaps both. There is no point in denying that Iceland and Greenland were the most isolated parts of the medieval Scandinavian cultural sphere. Norway was better integrated in European culture in general, but Denmark and Sweden were clearly ahead also of Norway. For instance, looking at universities abroad, we see that in the late Middle Ages, 2,146 Danes and 821 Swedes, already including Finns at this point, studied at German universities, and a handful studied in Paris as well. This is a clear indication that Scandinavia did become a more integrated part of Europe through Christianization, at least if we're talking about the elites. By embracing the new religion, Scandinavians also gained access to European culture and politics, adopting continental ways of warfare, administration, Worship, aesthetics, and education. Next time, we'll return to the political narrative and see how the introduction of the two institutions we've covered in the last two episodes that is, the kingdom and the church combined to create yet another royal Scandinavian marcher, this time in Denmark. Make sure to join me then for the rise and fall of King Knut the Holy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please spread the word wherever you run into other fans of Scandinavian history, such as the library, your local church, or Times Square on New Year's Eve. You can also support the show by going to the Scandinavian History Podcast web shop and purchasing a stylish Scandinavian History Podcast t-shirt, tote bag, laptop case, face mask, or almost anything else your heart desires. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with uplifting quotes from the Håvamal, Accredited to the king of, of the gods. Why not get a coffee mug with a message, Wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Or a onesie for your baby with a text, Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies. Or a decorative pillow for the office couch saying, Speak useful words or be silent. The options are almost endless. Links to these amazing items and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop, or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages on that platform as well, at Schenkman, that's S H. A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.